heavily, I'm a clown. What's going on guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin pizzas. Have a very special guest on today, someone that I've been looking forward to talking with for a while now, Stefan Levera. He does a Austrian economics and Bitcoin focused podcast. He has had some tremendously good guests in the past, and you're going to hear me kind of gush over that uh, at the beginning of our interview uh, and get his thoughts on you know some of the prestige of some of the people that he's had on the show. I think Stefan does a really good job sort of exposing the Bitcoiner who might not have uh, Austrian economics background to how well it fits into the Bitcoin paradigm, as well as bridging the gap between the older schools of Austrian economic thought, sort of like the pre-Bitcoin and the post-Bitcoin world, uh, and, and how Bitcoin fits into that new paradigm. There are a lot of people out there who are Austrian economists per se, but uh, they're still gold bugs and they don't think that Bitcoin really has a place in the world. So I think that Stefan fills a really interesting niche there. So I think you guys are going to love this interview. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF. 1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Stefan, how you doing, man? Thanks, Colin. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm really glad to have you here. Actually, you're one of my longtime favorite Bitcoin podcasts out of all the podcasts out there. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, you, you have a long lineup of really good guests, and sometimes I sit back and I'm like, how does this guy do it? Like, how, how does he get really good guests? Because anybody who's never run a podcast probably doesn't know the hardest part is getting interesting people actually on the show. <laughs> uh, look, uh, some of that's, some of that is just having contacts, having been around Bitcoin for a while, mm. you just sort of know people. And over time, once you get the first few guests, then you sort of build on the success from that and in many cases, I've just had, I've spoken to people who were already a follower, follower of me, so then I can already DM them. Other times, you just kind of have to go through people, or other times you have to try and meet them, or you have to try and do things. Like a quick example, like if you look at, say, Peter McCormack, he offered with people to say, hey, I'll fly out to you, and I will do it in person kind of thing. And that's obviously yeah. a more expensive <laughs> way of going yeah. about doing it, but uh, Peter put in that money at the start to try and basically get get it rolling and then i guess he built an audience and from there it's sort of each time you just kind of trade off your name and your reputation a little bit well it seems like it paid off for him for sure yeah yeah but, yeah. but I, I i'm amazed because i see you know you got like uh george guido holtzman on and i was just like my mind was blown when i saw that episode pop up i was like no way. How, how did he even get this? Like, how did you get him on your show? <laughs> yeah, so I actually, so you might re recall, I previous, prior to that, I had re I had uh, Jeff Deist from the Mises Institute. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so usually it's sometimes, sometimes it's just a matter of speaking to, 
people who you already have a relationship with and sometimes it's just a matter of speaking to someone who's like one off you know like one hmm. degree separation yeah uh, because in some cases going cold you won't get a response but if you have a warm intro then better chance there yeah i've definitely found that it helps when you like know somebody who knows somebody you know it's like yeah exactly exactly so look i think for me a big part of it is just i've just built up a reputation over time as well i think that's part of it so i it all it all helps right like there's lots of different things right part of it is yeah having relationships with people already having a reputation some of those things help a little bit of persistence goes a long way too i'm sure Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, there's definitely examples of people I've been, like, trying to get on the show for ages, and then I finally get them on, right? So, obviously, listeners don't see that because, you know, in the background, I'm constantly trying to work out how to get someone on the show. And, you know, for them, they just kind of see, oh, it's this person, this guest is on the show. Yeah, I I wonder if there's anybody who's been like, all right, fine, I got to get this Stefan guy to quit messaging me. I'm just going to do his interview. I'm going to get it over with. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Sometimes it's it's funny because some interviews, they come up in like a funny way as well. Like it might come up when people are talking on Twitter and someone gets tagged into a conversation and then it just kind of quickly happens, right? It just sort of quickly, Hmm. the magic just kind of happens. The same way like with my uh, Jack Dorsey episode, right? Like that was just... People were just talking on Twitter. I just at messaged him or at mentioned him and all these people started hitting like and retweet and so on and then it just kind of happened from there. That was, in fairness, that was just a bit of serendipity. Like, obviously, I got a bit lucky, right? And we should mm-hmm. we should recognize that, right? It's not all skill. There's a bit of luck to it, but a lot of it is just persistence and work. With Jack Dorsey, it was like a perfect storm because it was like... Light, uh, it was like the lightning torch was going around, and then I think Matt O'Dell gave Jack Dorsey the lightning torch, and then Jack Dorsey was like, well, Twitter, I love Bitcoin. And then everyone's like inundating Jack with all these requests for interviews and stuff, and he was like, sure, yeah, Bitcoin, let's talk about it. Exactly. I Right time, right place. I got lucky. Uh, sometimes, it, but again, some of, this, some of this is reputation as well. So mm. because I had a good reputation up at that point, then a lot of people were hitting like, people would vouch for me as well. So that helps mm-hmm. as well. So part of that is, yeah, again, trading off your reputation and building a, a consistency and a quality to your approach and to your brand and how people view you know, the podcast. They sort of, they know what they're going to get. They're getting a certain level of quality. Mm-hmm. They know I will spend all that time in the background. I will spend the time doing the curation. I will spend the time doing the research to give you, the listener, a very easy, digestible episode and interview rather than yeah. kind of meandering and fluffing on about other stuff. But again, everyone's yeah. got different styles. People have their own voice. I have a voice and a position around what i call bitcoin austrian right a bitcoin austrian view on things and i approach my interviews from that angle and so that's why i think some listeners really appreciate that and mm-hmm. i think that's a thing as well like what whatever you're doing sometimes it's it's useful to think about well do you have a distinctive voice are you known for bringing a certain specific kind of view or do you communicate with a certain level of skill and clarity that people are drawn to 
Yeah, one thing that I think you do really well is uh, you, you take like these concepts that a lot of people might not be familiar with, Austrian economics, you know, probably a topic that most people don't have lots of exposure to unless they've sought it out on their own volition. And then you, you take those ideas and you sort of break them down. So if somebody brings up a concept, it could be anything. They could bring up the Cantillion effect. You'll say, oh yeah, the Cantillion effect. Okay, well, this is what that means, you know, for you listeners at home who who might not know. Uh, and and that makes for a really relatable listening experience. It makes it really easy to digest content, even if it's maybe a level or two above what you would normally understand by you kind of being there to lead the listener through the conversation, I think is really helpful. Well, thank you. Yeah, I definitely, that's a big uh, focus for me. I do spend a lot of time doing research, right? And for me, part of this is obviously I've been a long time student of Austrian economics. And so that for me is what helps me translate back what the Austrian economist is saying, and I can try to help, you know, put that into a digestible way. And I do a similar thing as well with when it comes to Bitcoin and Lightning developers as well. So if I'm interviewing someone who's quite, who's known for being quite a technical person and the way they would articulate a certain concept, I'll then try and say, okay, hold on, let me just try and relate that back, make it accessible for the listeners. In fairness, even, even still, my podcast is... Probably, as it's seen right now, I'm probably seen more like an intermediate or advanced level podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, my podcast is probably not seen as like a beginner level podcast. Sure. That's something I'm trying to deal with here and there. Like I'll occasionally do some beginner level episodes, uh, but I think part of that is just that's just the nature of the beast. And as for me, it means my audience will be perhaps slightly more niche than say a beginner level podcast because it's you're kind of calling to a smaller niche you're driving at a smaller group of potential people who can resonate with that but that said sometimes it's like you might have a smaller group of people who listen but they really like your show because they just they can't get that anywhere else so that's an angle as well so i mean look everyone's got to find you know with their podcast and find their own voice their own interview style how they would like to present who they would like to interview what sort of topics and themes they will cover I think I've sort of found some level of niche there in terms of being the a Bitcoin Austrian uh, view and also helping people understand Bitcoin and Lightning, even though the interviews might be with somebody who's a more technical person. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting there. Like, you know, I think there's a lot of information out there for beginners. Uh, and then after that, it's sort of like, okay, where, where do I go next? And I know like from my experience, when I came into Bitcoin, I am, when I first came into Bitcoin, I was like, oh yeah, Bitcoin, this is really interesting. And I learned about it. I was like, okay, this is how it works. These are the things that are unique about it. And then it was like, from there, everything just opened up and there were all these different directions to go. And I had no, no structure, no guidance, no, no like path to follow. Um, and, and I think, you know, it was right around the same time that all of these really good Bitcoin podcasts emerged, you know, like there was noted tales from the crypt. Well, tales from the crypt have been going a little bit longer, I think, but, uh, Pompliano's show, like your show, like a lot of that kind of came out right around the tail end of that bull market, uh, in 2017, when it started to really pick up steam. And I think it was, I think you had probably identified it. It was a hunger for that intermediate level discussion, like something a little bit more, to chew on than just the beginner stuff. Yeah, that's a, probably a good point. I think for me, I st- I think many people were feeling it, right? Many people were, th- were saying, hey, I'm a bit annoyed about the current level of coverage at the time that I you know, started some of this stuff. 
there weren't that many high quality options at the time, right? There was Noted, there was Tales from the Crypt, and not a lot else. I mean, there was a there was a ton of quote unquote crypto podcasts, right? But there weren't mm-hmm. many who would have a real focus on Bitcoin and cover it at a certain level of detail. And it's it, actually this reminds me a little bit of uh, Matt Ridley's book. I can't remember the exact title of it, but essentially he's talking about how sometimes certain inventions in human history, it's kind of like there were many people working on it at the same time, right? Like the marginal mm. revolution, right? There was uh, Jevons and uh, I forgot the other guy and then Menga. So it was Menga, Jevons and one other guy um, who were all kind of independently credited as being the marginal revolution in like the 1870s and this concept of thinking about on the margin, what is the additional uh, utility or you know cost that I'm paying? And so it may just be that many people were thinking the same thing and that was why a bunch of people just kind of started up around then and then that the rest is just this last year or two that we've kind of all built a brand around you know, providing some form of whether that's Bitcoin education or a more stepped back chill version of maybe entertainment as well of just listening to kind of casual level discussion about Bitcoin, right? So everyone's got their different angle that they bring. Hmm. I would imagine you feel the same way that I do, but it's been really rewarding to ride out this bear market and see, you know, I've seen like this community level growth uh in bitcoin that that you really couldn't see i mean so i'm fairly new to bitcoin i don't i don't actually know how long you've been involved in it but for me coming in uh like late 2016 early 2017 and then in this hype cycle and then watching all the hype get washed away and the all the people who were left slowly turn more and more towards bitcoin and then have this maturation of understanding uh, has been a really rewarding thing to sort of live through especially as a content creator yeah i really think we've done a good job a lot of the what i'm going to call bitcoin austrians have essentially done a good job in teaching people. So this is guys like Safe Dinamus, Pierre Richard, Michael Goldstein, Vijay Boyapati, these guys, and to some lesser extent myself as well, we've kind of helped spread that knowledge. And I think at least there is now a core group of people who think of it more from a Bitcoin Austrian sound money angle. Whereas in the past, mm. it was much more confused. It was, oh, blockchain technology, oh, shitcoin XYZ, shitcoin B, you know, whatever. And now I think what's, what happens is, uh, actually, even here I'm reminded of Jimmy Song's discussion around Bitcoin's anti-fragility. And so Jimmy Song has mentioned how developers are who give, uh, in some sense, they're the people who give Bitcoin its anti-fragility. If there's a problem, they will go and try and code code up a fix to that. They will try and look at solutions to that. And in some sense, educationally that's what some of these bitcoin podcasts are doing there was a problem in the past because the narrative was so confused so messed up and if it was kind of like if you went to the mainstream news they just had no clue right and then if you went to some of these crypto websites it was all ico shitcoin shilling and then there was no actual quality information source. Now the the pendulum is sort of swinging back, if you will. And now other companies like, say, Bitcoin Magazine, they've decided, hey, we're going to go, we're going to properly focus back on Bitcoin. And now mm-hmm. other companies and other, even venture capital and some of these other people have decided, they've, they're sort of seeing what I think many of the Bitcoin Austrian types have been saying 
for years they've been saying yeah. bitcoin is the real value in this space many of these other shit coins and icos and so on they are not where the value is and in my view the last year or two has essentially been a vindication of that now that said who knows what comes next time there might be a new round of you know whatever the next ico thing is whether that's ieos or something else there'll be some other thing people will pump into that that'll be seen as like a narrative of what's driving the bitcoin price whatever ultimately at least there is now a high quality set of youtubers podcasters even books that are out now right the bitcoin standard inventing bitcoin grokking bitcoin uh, bitcoin money by a bitcoin rabbi there's just a lot more high quality material out there as more and more people in this world have sort of felt their way out because it was almost like in the dark it was people were kind of feeling their way out in the dark and they're kind of stumbling on things whereas in my view the what i call the bitcoin austrian view was much more clarified and much more on purpose and Mm. in some sense that's also part of what i do with my podcast is my role is curation i spend a lot of time making sure you know researching and making sure that the guest is solid and that they're not gonna that they've made some important or interesting contribution or they're doing something interesting related to bitcoin and not just what we've seen in the past where people just took this approach of, oh, I'm just going to do a podcast and I'm just going to monetize however the hell I can. And that means mm-hmm. they would just end up doing, you know, shill for pay episodes or, you know, or you see those websites where they've got, you know, crypto influencer and they've got, you know, maybe they've got how many, 30,000 or 40,000 YouTube subscribers. And they'll, if you pay them like 300 bucks, they'll interview you on their show or they will shill your shitcoin on their show. And it just... It was a very dodgy and sleazy sort of practice. And now I think people are realizing where the quality is. And many past shitcoiners are now, if anything, coming back around and saying, oh, yeah, actually, Bitcoin was where the value was at all along. And that was really what it was. And so the view that I take is that we should view this like, a, you know, it's a new monetary phenomenon. It's going to take decades to play out. But you've got to be focused on Bitcoin and you've got to be focused on, as Vijay Boyapati says, you must, we must be thinking to build uh, vertically on the Bitcoin vertical as opposed to the crypto horizontal. And mm-hmm. those people, those educators, those content creators, those entrepreneurs, those developers who are thinking, okay, how can I build on the Bitcoin vertical? In my view, they are the ones who will do well out of this next five, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think we've already started to see that paradigm sort of play out, uh, you know, slowly right now, but it's it's picking up momentum as this market starts to move forward. And some of these products that have been in development during this bear market, we watch as they start to slowly come to fruition. And we see all these new and interesting things emerging um, from the dust of what's left after all these, this just massive fallout. But, you know, you raised a lot of like really interesting nuances there. Um, Like the I think it's so interesting watching this phenomenon emerge in the way we as humans, because probably this is one of the few phenomenons that have emerged globally uh, in a world as connected as as our world is today, right? I mean, you can you could argue maybe there's like some other things that have happened, like certain video games or like pop culture or something like that that have emerged uh, while our world is disconnected, but never something as paradigm changing as Bitcoin. Um, and it's interesting the way. You know, humans self-organize, and the way their the social interaction happens 
especially at this exponential level when we're so interconnected in a world where everyone is connected, you know, 24-7. Watching this self-organization and, and social uh, interaction happen as this paradigm evolves is really fascinating. What I've noticed with that is really just because we have the internet now, we can very quickly spread narratives. Now, the downside, the flip side of that is the bullshit artists can spread their bullshit narratives very quickly, right? You've got these shitcoin shills and whatever. But on the positive side, it means those people, those of us who are thinking the same way can quickly find each other. And I have, I might have mentioned this before, but with Jeff Deist on the podcast, I was speaking with him about how the Mises Institute, one of the, the stated goals or strategies for some time of the Mises Institute was to do an end run around the government-controlled education and propaganda system. And so in doing so, they are pr- providing all these educational resources, many of the which are free, fantastic resource at Mises.org. And they put out a lot of books and now they're putting out podcasts as well and videos and all of this stuff to help people understand things from that point of view. And so in a similar way, that's kind of what I see my podcast as. I'm kind of doing an end run around some of these kind of mainstream media who don't, who aren't selling you the right view. They're not giving you accurate information about some of these things or they're not delving into the right level of detail on a certain topic. And so that was, for me, that's really where I see some of the value come from, you know, high quality Bitcoin podcasts. And to your point around self-organization, I think that's another interesting one because we can very quickly self-organize on Twitter or online and at these Bitcoin conferences as well. So people can quickly find their tribe, so to speak. And that is another aspect of quickly learning where in the past, what might have taken you know, hours and hours and hours of reading and learning, well, now you can kind of very quickly pick up that knowledge by going to some of these meetup groups, going to listening to certain podcasts that you can take advantage of the knowledge that some of us who have been around for a while or have been reading Austrian economics for a while, you can kind of very, I think of it like if someone were to just listen, like from my podcast is episode one all the way through and you just binge through, you would just be massively, your learning curve would be massively sped up compared to what we had to go through because many times we sort of went reading on, on some certain pathway or listening to some guy when realizing, oh, no, actually, that was a dead end. You know, all that time that you spend kind of going up dead ends, well, now, if someone is a skilled curator, because that's part of, you know, our role as Bitcoin podcasters, is to sort of curate and help uh, take that editorial direction or curation to stop, to help guide people on the right pathway. So I, I very much, I view that as part of my role. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's probably also too sort of sifting through the lessons that have already been learned, you know, because if you come into this and you're brand new and you're like, well, I want to learn about Bitcoin uh, and you just Google Bitcoin, you're going to end up in a pretty messy situation pretty quickly. And you're going to learn a lot of lessons the hard way that a lot of people have wor- learned 10,000 times over, you know, in the last five years. Uh, whereas if someone, if the first place someone ends up on their Bitcoin journey is Stefan Levera's podcast, yeah, they're going to get a very, very condensed, no-nonsense hand-holding through, you know, from step one all the way to zero to hero, literally. 
Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's the hope, right? I try to make that material for that reason. Uh, because, again, especially at the start, I just did it on the side, right? I wasn't really monetizing it. Now I am starting to add advertising and get sponsors. Um, but for me, I just see it like, hey, we're all hodlers. And if we can educate people, then that may help speed this process of people realizing where the real value was all along. It's difficult in one sense because you are putting yourself at risk a little bit more mm-hmm. because you know I'm putting my name out there but for me I just felt like hey the risk I'm just going to have to take it I'm just going to take that risk because I think that at least I can be a skilled communicator and interviewer and in doing so speed this process now again bringing it back I think in some sense bitcoin is inevitable right it's just the hardest money the best money is going to win but I think people who are good at educating can speed that process. That's how I think mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, you know, it's probably um, something might come to fruition, uh, but if people understand it, it might be more useful. Uh, I, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, just, just because something is inevitable doesn't necessarily mean that uh, unless people are able to harness it or understand why it is the way it is, it might not necessarily be as useful for them. So I think that in in that sense, you're right. And also, you know, Bitcoin is so interesting because, yeah, it's great. You know, your your podcast is growing, like you're picking up advertisers and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, even if you had none of that, you still have somewhat of an incentive, you know, if you have skin in the game in this thing, to continue to spread the word and to get people more knowledgeable about how this works and where it's going and what the future holds, uh, just because of the fact that it it it's scarce and and it's artificially scarce in such a way that nothing has ever been uh and and that's beneficial for everyone involved like as soon as you get in you benefit from the the network effect yeah i think a big part of it is as each hodler comes in they have an incentive to teach other people about it as well but i think to the point you're making as well is also there are people who were what we might say as right for the wrong reasons. They bought Bitcoin early, but they didn't understand why it was important. And, mm-hmm. or they might have bought Bitcoin and not understood it in the right way. And then they thought of it like, oh, it's payments instead of understanding mm-hmm. it more like sound money, hard money aspect. So they didn't realize they should be hodling it. And so over time, we've all obviously even, you know, from, it's not, I'm not saying I'm perfect and I came here and I knew everything when I started, right? Obviously, right, right. I've gone on my own journey of learning and I'm still learning. I still do not consider myself an expert, although it's kind of funny because being in Bitcoin, you just see such a huge range, right? Like if you and I, if somebody, if you, if somebody compared, say, you or me against like someone on the street, they'd be like, yeah, these guys are experts, but... I don't think of myself as an expert because I'm kind of looking further up at the people who are like well above me in knowledge. So it's it's a funny thing. Uh, There's levels to this, as they say. Yeah, yeah. It's it's almost like there's an S curve of of knowledge uh, of like of understanding of Bitcoin, where it's like the more you get into it, the less you know. Uh, The more you learn, the deeper you get. You know, the the wider the hole. Yeah, though it's like it's sort of like the more you learn, the more you realize you actually don't even understand yet, and it reminds me as well of of this idea of density as well. 
Because, quick example, imagine you were like a computer researcher back in maybe the 50s or something like that. You probably could have attended every single computer conference and read every single computer magazine and every journal because that's all there was. Mm. But then as this thing grew out, each field and sub-discipline within, say, computer science became its own thing, right? There was, you know, whatever, networking and there's hardware and there's different software, there's open source and there's Linux and... Now, it would be impossible for one person to be a master of all of these things. So in the same way, I I see it like that. Bitcoin is going to become more and more dense. And so we're going to see further specialization into different areas. And we may see things like, say, uh, uh, a Bitcoin mining specialist podcast. Or I think think there actually is one like that. I think it's called Hashrate or something. But I'm not sure if they also also talk about shitcoins or not. Anyway, but that's just an example, right? So people may start specializing into certain areas. We may start seeing things like a Lightning Network only podcast. Uh, Imagine Mm -hmm. that. Uh, We might start seeing podcasts who kind of specialize even more niche. They kind of niche down further. So... Ultimately, it's a it's a question of how much density there is in Bitcoin, and over time, as it expands and grows out, then it will become more big enough to support, in some sense, enough uh, differentiation or specialization into certain topics. And those topics may be even more niche than what we see now. Like, so what we see now in terms of like who's a big podcaster now? Let's say you know Peter McCormack, what Bitcoin did is probably one of the big podcasts in the space, um, or Let's Talk Bitcoin, and so on. But who knows but there may well be space for then people to go and find you know even more niched down versions of that hmm. yeah most definitely and bitcoin is a strange beast you know because i feel like if you separate if you try to piece out uh the density too much you sort of lose track of the forest for the trees and you see this a lot of times with people who are really highly technical you know they miss some of the nuance around the game theory or some of the nuance around the economics piece or people who only focus on the economics and don't understand any of the technicals they lose out on some nuance there as well so it's it's interesting to see i've i've never encountered something so wide reaching in its scope um, just to be able to understand it at, at a base layer it is quite a difficult thing to understand. I spend, well, nowadays it's it's pretty much my full-time job to trying to understand this thing and I'm nowhere close. I'm nowhere near. I definitely sympathize with the idea for newbies because for them, they're coming into this, they're thinking, well, is it a money? Is it a technology? Is it like all of, and each of these little pieces along that way, along that journey for them, it's just very difficult for them to understand. And you could, they could even go talk to certain Austrian school economists who might not understand the technology components of Bitcoin. And you can go talk to some technologist who doesn't understand why the economics of it works or why we believe the economics of it are superior. So it, it is just a very, very difficult thing to teach people and at the same time it's kind of like how do you I'm just trying to think of the right way to say this how do you impress upon them the importance of this because it can be very difficult to go and do the reading and for many people that's just too much right because people are time poor right they're not necessarily like you and me they're not like us who who enjoy kind of reading about this stuff uh, but essentially, my view is 
it will come to a point where everyone will have to learn or they will, and obviously many of these details can be abstracted away right so we can use software and wallet bitcoin wallets that just deal with some of this complexity in the background for us and you know guys like you and me are more like we're enthusiasts so we're just going to be interested to understand the nuances of it but in reality there are many bitcoin users who are not going to be so technical and understand okay oh this is what channel management is in lightning and so on right mm-hmm. well you know we don't have to understand gravity in order to stay stuck to the earth right exactly I, mean, I think as bitcoiners we probably split hairs a whole lot more than is necessary um especially if we're right and and if this is inevitable as people like you and i think it is um but then at the end of the day there's there's just so much to unpack and, and so much to get wrong. Um, and you see people are, are led down some pretty pretty questionable paths when they get just one piece of the puzzle wrong. Potentially, yeah. I mean, you look at some of the blockchain type people, right? Are they just, they, they, for whatever reason, I, I try to explain this to them, but they just keep thinking like blockchain technology is a thing. It's really not, right? And they just think... Hmm oh, wow, well, I can use it for logistics or proving the provenance of my supply chain or whatever, right? We've all heard the 10,000 different, you know, bullshit scam stories that these blockchain people tell. And some of them are just misguided, right? They, they believe that they are, you know, doing something innovative when they've been, they've had the wool pulled over their eyes. So, yeah, definitely there are examples of people who, have not understood certain things and that has unfortunately cost them money or cost them time chasing and in some sense barking up the wrong tree hmm. yeah uh did, you didn't know alt season was right around the corner <laughs> well yeah it's um who knows what the next you know quote-unquote alt season is going to be we, we we don't know yet i i just focus on bitcoin and just do what i can to at least try and impress upon people the importance of sound money and why it's so much better and why we need to get our money right first before worrying about some of these other kind of more fantastical kind of crazy ideas out there i i really hate to see it too because i know having been involved in some of the things i've been involved in and i talk about this uh, a fair amount on my show but it's like investing in penny stocks or something like that. It's like, yeah, you can make a lot of money doing it. And and maybe, you know, some of the people who are buying the altcoins now, they're going to be laughing at me one day because they're going to be like, that guy was so dumb. I made a fortune off of all of this. But the problem is really that if you don't understand what's going on here sooner or later, it doesn't matter how much money you make, you're going to get burned and you're probably going to lose all of it or, or more than you even had in the first place um because you're playing with fire on on a thing that that is very hot and it is going to burn you very fast it is still so early we don't really have easy ways for people to secure their bitcoins and it it is going to be difficult i think everyone has this feeling of when they join bitcoin or buy bitcoin they feel like they're late but we are so early Mm -hmm. we are all so early it's just people there are people who joined in like 2012 or 2011 who feel like they were late right Hmm. Uh, yeah it's it's just mind-boggling in in some ways because we in fairness at the start like at least when i first kind of got more involved into bitcoin i thought it was all going to happen much sooner but i was a bit 
overly bullish let's say <laughs> mm-hmm. um I, yeah i think i went through that too you know where, where you're like all right this is it like hyper bitcoinization is happening now like <laughs> I, I, i'm all in right now and this is it like i'm gonna just sit in my closet for the next couple weeks and emerge a, a trillionaire you know it's i think that there is a little bit of that like and, and i think it's maybe natural to feel that way at first because you're kind of like it's so when you finally see it you can't unsee it yeah i've seen definitely i think part it's it's like a phase you go through right like when you first learn about bitcoin and you're like oh my god hyper bitcoinization and speculative attack and so on whereas i think now uh, it's sort of the more mature understanding is that it will it's going to take you know some time you know 10 15 years at the like at the earliest earliest right i think it'll you know it'll likely be longer um but at the same time you know what else are you gonna do you gotta try to live your life and try to help people where you can and so that's that's what i just do with the podcast try to fix your time preference long enough to accumulate satoshis (laughs) (laughs) yeah that too yeah yeah, exactly. And so I'm, I'm working on a few ideas as well. So I'm actually looking to do a, a Bitcoin education workshop or seminar thing here in Australia. So we're going to do like in-person workshops and, you know, just take take a newbie through from, uh, you know, how to how to run your node, how to secure your Bitcoins, like and to at least give them some options on how you can do that. Talk about, you know, coin joins and lightning and things like that that they can do to you know, none of which is a silver bullet, but these are just different tools that you can use to help yourself. So hmm. that's something I'm looking to do at the moment as well as obviously, you know, driving my podcasts a bit more nowadays as well. Hmm. Yeah, well, let's shift gears, actually. Um, I'm, I'm curious, like, you, you've had a lot of people on your show, but I want to know, I'll tell you, my favorite episode of yours was actually the one that you did solo where you just went through sort of your rough idea of of Austrian economics and and all these different resources in Austrian economics and how it all fits into your understanding of Bitcoin. That was one of the best episodes I think you ever did. But I'm curious which one of your episodes or maybe a couple were your favorite and and why and who your favorite guests were. Uh, Yeah, tough one, man. It's like choosing your children, right? (laughs) Yeah, Um, I actually wrote that down there. Make him choose his favorite child. (laughs) Um. Gita Hulsman was would it be one of my favorite episodes. I think you probably any listen anyone who's listened to my episode with him, I think it was fifty one off fifty two off the top of my head. I think it was fifty one. That one was special for me, just having read so much of his work and listened to so many of his talks. That was really special for me to be able to actually interview this legend, right? So I thought yeah. that was amazing. Obviously the Jack Dorsey and Elizabeth Stark episode, I think that is, you know, without a doubt, that was my highest downloaded episode. That was the episode that probably put me on the map as far as Bitcoin podcasting goes. Um, that one was a big one. Uh, interviewing Adam Back was a big one for me. I thought that was really special. I mean, he's just such a, you know, long-standing, highly respected Bitcoiner. So it was definitely a real honor to interview Adam. Who else? Yeah, I mean, just a lot of the episodes with, you know, these some of these guys who are my friends now, right? Like Safedean, VJ, Pierre, Michael Goldstein. I, I enjoy interviewing them as well. It's just a bit of fun to kind of get them on and have a chat with them. Um, I, I just, 
yeah, I guess I, I, I'm sort of guided by what I think is interesting and what I think will be educational for my listeners. And I guess it's kind of like if you're a listener of the podcast, you're just sort of coming along with me for the journey. But mm-hmm. what I'm also seeing now as well as a bit of... Uh, you might have seen, actually, Brady, uh, Citizen Bitcoin, did a poll mm-hmm. saying, hey, did you find... Austrian economics before or after Bitcoin, and I, 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 it was a counterintuitive result. It was actually only thirty-three percent of people who found Austrian economics before Bitcoin. Sixty-six percent hmm. found it after, which to me imply, and maybe that's a big part of why I have some level of listeners, is they are actually interested to learn that side of it more. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I've spoken with people from you know different Bitcoin companies out there, and some of them even said themselves they didn't have as much of a grasp around the Austrian economics parts of it where they were maybe more technically strong on, you know, the technical aspects of Bitcoin. But they, until having listened to some of these episodes with, you know, Austrian economists, they hadn't grasped that side of it more. But again, everyone's going on that journey, right? And so over the last few years, I think that's kind of the journey a lot of people have gone on. Um, So, yeah, so in terms of um, episodes I enjoy doing, yeah, like I think... I love doing Austrian economics episodes. I enjoy interviewing Lightning Network developers. Some of the privacy episodes are also fun as well, interviewing Chris Belcher, Samurai Wallet, uh, Adam Fitchell from Wasabi Wallet. Those are interesting episodes as well. Uh, yeah, to touch on the the poll that you mentioned, I know like my anecdotal experiences definitely confirm uh, that most of the people that I meet didn't even really know anything about Austrian economics until post Bitcoin. Um, I'm one of the exceptions to the rule because I was, I I fell I I owe my understanding of Austrian economics to Ron Paul because Ron Paul wrote a book called End the Fed and that led me down the Austrian economics rabbit hole and that was before I really even I think I had heard about Bitcoin but it wasn't even on my radar. Uh, at that point in time. And I just so happened to sort of find them both at the same time, but I was already in Austrian economics before. So yeah, you tend to hear it goes the other way a lot more, um, which I think is really interesting. I mean, actually, I can imagine the whole Bitcoin process is probably even more mind-blowing if you go down that rabbit hole at the same time. Oh, definitely. I think for me, it was big enough for me being a libertarian coming down the Bitcoin rabbit hole because I already was very, very amenable to the ideas, obviously, being anti-central banking, anti-government control of money. But then to also learn some of the cypherpunk stuff and, you know, understanding and trying to learn more about encryption, cryptography, you know, public and private signatures. There's just so much that you have to sort of learn and it really does take a certain commitment to learning and just continual commitment to learning and so for me that's that's a commitment that i essentially make i try to you know i think my listeners understand that i'm not an expert but at the same time i'll do the reading and i'll do the research as much as i can to make sure i can have somewhat of an intelligent conversation about it um because yeah it just it is so multidisciplinary at the times that you might be talking to one person about investment and then you might be talking about how the way banks operate. Then you might layer on some Austrian understanding around that. But then you might also mm-hmm. think about, oh, okay, what are some of the technological ways to achieve that from a, you know, whatever um, a Bitcoin or Bitcoin-related technology that might interface with that, whether that's, you know, proof of reserves and how feasible such a technology would be. So it is just such an interdisciplinary thing. And that for us, I guess, as Bitcoin podcasters, that 
creates some level of a niche because it's not something easy for anyone else to come into and just do straight away, right? Like no one could just jump in straight away and be like, I'm a Bitcoin podcaster now. Like it takes time to build up your knowledge around that, right? And so yeah. if someone only has a, a an already existing competence in one area, they, they may not necessarily know enough about the other areas to, to knowledgeably and intelligibly hold these conversations about a specific Bitcoin or Lightning technology. Right. And, and now we've kind of come full circle because we did see that, you know, I mean, we saw the just like you said, the noise of just of all the people who were like these crypto influencers coming in in waves, you know, because of all the money being made and just saying, look at me, I'm an expert. Uh, and they don't know their hand for their from their foot. I mean, I distinctly remember a kid on YouTube who was sell, shilling all his referral links to all these different uh scams basically and somebody asked him what a private key was and he didn't know what a private key was. <laughs> i'm not actually sure what a private key is so i'll look into that and get back to you it's like you have like four hundred fifty thousand subscribers on youtube how do you not know what a private key is so, um and and outside of just that like there's all these pervasive fallacious ideas um that that Austrian economics does a really good job sort of unwinding us from a really good example is um uh what's the book uh economics in one lesson yeah fantastic you know, that, that goes through all those really really basic but extremely important uh common misunderstandings surrounding economic ideas and they bleed into our understanding of everyday life and if you don't get those straightened out like you're gonna you're gonna have a rough time oh for sure yeah, I think uh, Hopper explains it also in another way, in a similar way. It's almost like you're kind of x-raying things and you can sort of see the the structure of things and understanding a little bit more around how some of these things are economically structured and how they must be so in order to work. And this is in uh, Economic Science and the Austrian Method, which is a fantastic statement of the Austrian method because, again, the methodology around Austrian economics is very hotly contested or very poorly understood so then normie people and people who are kind of coming from a more uh you know standard you know what they learned at university must be truth kind of view Mm. they think oh you austrian guys are not scientific or they think you people who are they're not understanding that there's a certain method to how Austrian economics is done. And that is actually done in such a way to make it more precise, to make it more logically deducible, and therefore that the conclusion must follow from the premises. And that if you want to make, mm-hmm. if you want to challenge that argument, well, you either need to dispute the veracity or the accuracy of one of those premises or knock off one of the founding kind of assumptions or founding uh, axioms in the Austrian economics. So an example is uh, man acts purposefully. Right. So that's a quick example there. Yeah, I've encountered people online, at least. I don't think I've encountered anyone in real life who's who's had like the gumption to have this conversation with me. But online, certainly, uh, where everybody's a tough guy. But people that that draw vehement issue with the idea of, of praxeology, you know, the idea of uh, logical deduction, like you said, is like, yes, well, we have A, we have B, therefore C. Um, it's like, well, you can't prove that empirically. You can't prove that with data. It's like, I, I don't have to prove that with data. You can observe it. It's reality. Um, there are people that, that say, no, that isn't science. That that can't be. That, and Mises was an idiot. Um, and, and it's hard. 
it's hard to get around that whenever our society is so steeped in academia um, and, and, and in academic gatekeeping and in all these progressive levels of academic gatekeeping that you have to go through to get into really any kind of specialized job in this world outside of maybe computer programming, right, or sales or something like that. But Yeah, so that's an interesting one as well. So it is changing a little bit. Like if you listen to some of these... Um Austrian economists, some of them are now getting jobs in universities and things, but it is still very tough. And you have to, again, think of the incentives. So the way I think of it is it's not like there's some deep, dark room and they're like, oh, let's not let any Austrians in. It's more just like the money flows in the direction Uh that it's easiest, right? And so if you're going to be a mouthpiece for the politicians or you are espousing a certain ideology or view that is aligned with the gut, with the politician's view of wanting to spend a lot of other people's money, well then, guess what? You're going to get more funding. You're going to be more likely to get a job and get funding. Central banking is, is providing a lot of the jobs for economists. So guess what? That's that's the Who's going to bite the hand that feeds them? Who's going to be an Austrian economist who works at the central bank and says, yeah, we should abolish central banks? Well, no, that's just <laughs> not how it works, right? So... That is the challenge that we are faced with. And what's happened is some level of capture of schooling and of higher education and university by government. And so Mm. the influence has swung very much so in the statist direction as opposed to the libertarian anti-state view, which is obviously in our view a more uh, resonating view with us. So... There's just a bit of difficulty with that. And I think even if you look back at Mises, I think um, Mises has a... Oh, I can't remember the exact title. Uh, and I think there's also another one. I think this one might be Hayek. I think it's called Intellectuals in Society. Yeah. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, some of these guys, these free market economists and philosophers who have written about this idea of how intellectuals often, when in a government environment, they end up providing some of this, quote-unquote, intellectual cover fire for the government. And that's just hmm. that's just the nature of the game, and that is again bringing it back to why we need other alternative ways of doing an end run around them, such as podcasts and you know um, writing our own articles and our own books that help help deprogram people from the kind of Keynesian and other economic thinking that gets pushed their way. Hmm. You almost have to be a little bit of a natural contrarian um, to to break out of it without without careful guidance or just happen to fall upon you know something like the Stefan Levera podcast because we tend as humans you know we tend to gravitate towards what's familiar and or or what what we were told is true um and and it's so pervasive you know that that it's easy to dismiss Austrian economics and to say, well, no, that's, that's nonsense. Uh, I was taught X, Y, and Z, and that's not compatible with what you're saying, and I'm not even going to bother examining the two because I already know I was taught this, uh, and obviously that's true. Yeah, it's very much a social thing as well. People don't want to be the odd one out. And it takes a certain kind of character, a certain level of persistence, a certain level of just dogged adherence to the truth and what you really, to really think out, okay, what are the conclusions of this thing that I, you know, this axiom or this idea? 
And most people just don't have time for it as well. Like people are time poor. They've got families to look after. They have, you know, jobs and so on. It's, it's like, it's appreciable. It's understandably difficult for people to go and resist that. Why would they go and spend all this time trying to read this other economics and politics and technology stuff? It's just not the path of least resistance. Hmm. But ultimately, if you, you know, you really want to, do well sometimes you've got to be willing to go that way and you've got to be willing to stand out and you have to be willing to sort of put in the work that other people are not going to if you want to really get the results more so than you know what uh someone who doesn't who's not going to put in that work yeah yeah and it's funny too you know because bitcoin is like a tangible example maybe for the first time in a while uh where we're having that maybe natural inclination towards uh contrarianism natural inclination to sort of go against the grain uh, pursue your own understandings has actually been extremely rewarding to some of the people that are willing to stay that course uh you probably there haven't been a lot of opportunities like bitcoin out there before and there certainly probably won't be again anytime soon so it's nice to see these people kind of come out of the woodwork that are like hey i don't like the way things are and that's why it's interesting to me whenever i meet people who are uh, Austrian econo- or Austrian economists or students of before they found Bitcoin because it's like vindication. It's like vindication in real time that hey, you're not crazy. Like yeah, y- y- there was the th- this is you're onto something. Yeah, I think um, there was a good observation one of my followers made the other day on Twitter. He was saying um, something like uh, Bitcoin is probably one of the first examples that you can almost profitably learn about and. It's so mm. profitable to learn about because as you learn more about it, you sort of understand more about how it works and why it's you know resistant to government capture and so on. Uh, whereas in the past, we were unfortunately LARPing, right? We were live-action role-playing. We were thinking, oh, yeah, we're just going to buy our gold. and But mm-hmm. ultimately, that's not understanding why gold got centralized and co-opted in the first place, right? And and that's part of why you have to understand and again we all go on this journey of trying to understand a bit more of the history around it and understand oh okay well gold got centralized liberty reserve got shut down e-gold got shut down paypal got co-opted um there were prior attempts as well right like uh, b money and bitgold and hashcash and and until we got to bitcoin there was no viable competitor and that was why it was difficult but for me i had sort of lost hope in some sense because i thought well there's no way we're going to affect change just politically because the number of people who would actually bother to go and learn about this stuff is just not going to happen but now with bitcoin the government won't have a choice the government will will be forced to become smaller or go to zero ideally right but i am not naive enough to believe that you know yes the whole world is going to go to anarcho-capitalism as much as i would love that I think yeah. what we see in practice will be a world of many small states. So it'll be like Singapore's and Liechtenstein's and Hong Kong's and places like Switzerland as well uh, that we may see. And the tax rates will be much lower and we'll all be much more prosperous. And it'll be, it won't be perfe- perfect, but oh well, it'll be much better than what we have now. And that's my view. I think Bitcoin gave me some hope in that sense because it is a way that forces government to become smaller. 
Yeah, I, I, I certainly hope that we see a future like that. Um, yeah, I, I, you're, you're definitely right. I don't, anarcho-capitalism is, is wonderful on paper. Uh, in, our, in our reality, I don't know. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever see it, uh, but it'd be great. I'd, I'd love to see it. But, uh, you know, I, I said this on the show last week, uh, and I think it's kind of a false equivalency for us to constantly, as Bitcoiners, to constantly be engaging in this debate of, you know, like, what's better? Is it gold or is it Bitcoin? Is it gold or is it Bitcoin? And you like you, you see all these Peter Schiff quotes getting subtweeted all the past two weeks because people are in these big debates with this guy who big surprise he hates bitcoin because he sells gold um i i said this last week gold lost the constantly evolving battle of money a hundred years ago that battle's already over like it, it was already decided like out cold gold lost and, and even though fiat in a lot of ways is not what we would want it to be it's what we've got and it isn't going away unless right some sly roundabout way of, of taking the money back right and and that's what bitcoin is it's not trying to beat gold it doesn't have to be gold because gold already lost uh, a century ago yeah look i think that's a uh, again that's that is essentially the hardcore bitcoin of you right which most of us sort of share but i would say in my discussions with austrian economists some of them believe that gold hasn't necessarily failed right so if you speak to, say, Jeff Diest or Gita Holzman, they might not necessarily believe that. They might think of it more like there's a role for both of them. And I guess for us, we don't know how the future will play out. And it may well be that, you know, there may be a role for both of them. I, I think that's unlikely, though. My view is it'll likely just be a Bitcoin standard, right? We're going to live under a Bitcoin standard. Uh, but... I guess we have to have some humility and uh, appreciate that, hey, gold has this multi-thousand-year history. Um, uh, Yeah, so I'm sort of careful to shit on gold in some ways. Like, I think it is still, you know, it could maybe in the future, like, there might be some role for it for some reason that we don't understand yet. Um, But my view is mostly, yeah, like, I think it's going to be a Bitcoin standard, though. Well, I think it's wise to to be humble. I get myself in trouble a lot. (laughs) Yeah, look, that's the thing. Like, we're trying to talk about what we believe the world will be and what we believe will be a better money. And I think it's fair to say that the view of the Bitcoin Austrians has been essentially, you know, over the last 10 years or so, it's looked like that view is right. But it's, it's still, it will still take some time to sort of prove that out. We don't know, you know, we don't, yeah, it's just we have to have some humility, basically, is what I'm trying to say. I'm I'm eagerly awaiting watching this thing play out in real time. It, it's so fascinating every single day. I, I mean, I, I'm I know you keep up with with the current events, and maybe maybe we can finish up on this. But you know, watching uh, Facebook's Libra coin sort of emerge out of nowhere, right, in the last month or two, and then this huge regulatory backlash all across the globe, you know, countries all over the world are saying, wait a minute, like, slow down, like, we need to take a look at this, this is not what we want, this is going to put central banks out of business, this is going to take away seniors' privileges from the state, like, absolutely not, just pump the brakes, um, 
and I'm sure you're paying as much attention to this as I am because now the regulatory picture is all eyes are on Facebook, all eyes are on this corporate tokenized blockchain cryptocurrency, whatever the hell you want to call it. Uh, it, It's essentially taking the central bank and putting it into the hands of a technocracy, not uh, the hands of these state actors. Um, And and it's, it's strange to me because it's like, okay, guys, Bitcoin is still a thing. Bitcoin is still going on, but they're not paying attention to it, or at least they're not talking about it for some reason. Do you have any thoughts on that? So, yeah, a few things. Uh, Obviously, as as Bitcoiners, we think it's Zuckbox is basically a shitcoin, but obviously it won't win in the long run against Bitcoin. But it may be interesting from the point of view of if, let's say we lived in a world without Bitcoin and we were thinking back to, say, Frederick Hayek's The Denationalization of Money or Denationalization of Currencies, right? And he's talking, and in that book, he's talking about this idea of multiple private competing currencies. And so I can sort of imagine in some hypothetical way if we didn't have bitcoin right and we had just different companies trying to make their own money and in some sense they're trying to challenge the authority of the state to make money and so that's that's intellectually interesting right in some Mm -hmm. in some Mm -hmm. way that's interesting uh but obviously in practice i think what's going to happen is facebook is too centralized so zuckbox will get ideally uh, well it'll, it'll it'll either get shut down or massively neutered by regulation uh, but I think even if they do manage to get over, get through all that regulate regulatory burden and hurdles, and surely they would have cleared some of this stuff with like the U.S. government before they, you know, went to it. Although obviously there was that news recently about how I think uh, Zuckerberg and whatever and the team just kind of, or whoever it was from Facebook, I think David Marcus and whoever would, would are getting called in for a hearing. But yeah, I think there's not a huge amount of commentary I can offer there. I would say just overall. The thing I'm most excited to see is Orange Coin number go up. Okay, I think as Orange Coin number goes up, people will start to think, "Whoa, hang on, why am I leaving my money in Zuckbox? I could, I can go get Orange Coin. I can go get some Bitcoin." And so that for me is how I see it happening. We are, and also, it, you know, given the crazy price action recently, right over the last let's say month or two, it's come from what four thousand to now. As we record this, it's you know early July, and it's like around eleven and a half or twelve thousand. So, it, yeah, it really does feel like we're in a bull market now, and people will be drawn in by Orange Coin number go up. Okay, so you know, and I joke about this, right? But it's kind of like we have our full stack of memes and ways to get people in, right? So. For those people who love reading thousand-page Austrian books, right? Where th- you're a thousand-page libertarian, you like reading money, bank credit, and economic cycles, and man, economy, and state, and human action. Yeah, I mean, great. Like that's that's these are the kind of top-level Austrian texts. But not everyone is down to read that. For other people, they will just see Orange Coin number go up, and they will just get into it from that angle. And that's a whole new angle because now once they're in then they start coming down that rabbit hole. And for us, it's mm-hmm. about how do we guide people down that pathway in the best possible way, the most efficient possible way. And yeah, I mean, to some extent, that's what I was doing with episode uh, with SLP 71, Intro to Bitcoin Austrian Thought. I was trying to just kind of, if I took a newbie just like and tried to hit him with, here are the key, key points you want to understand. That's my little contribution to helping uh advance the knowledge and advance the education of the no coiners and you know new coiners in the space hmm. 
It's definitely our most powerful meme, uh, the deflationary nature, the extremely exponentially deflationary nature of Orange Coin. Um, <laughs> it, it's it, and what blows my mind is you know right now you just you just said it we went from four thousand dollars up to almost like thirteen at some point almost fourteen, and I think it was right almost it touched 14, fourteen 000. at one point yeah. And nobody's even talking about this. No one's even paying attention. I mean, we are, but like, we live it. My coworkers don't care. My family doesn't care. Like, nobody's paying attention. Like, this is just happening behind the scenes. This is gonna get crazy. It's gonna get crazy. So, I think the intuition most Bitcoiners have on this is that it will only the media attention will come once we get back to all-time highs. So, uh, I'm not sure how long you've kind of been around Bitcoin, but in the past as well, it was you know. If anything, the past bear markets were much tougher than this one. Mm. In some of those past bear markets, it was something like, you know, the 2015 and 2016 years where it was like really tough going. It was a long time. And what happened was, in my view, that the media attention only came once we hit the new, back then, the all-time high was like 1,200. And once we got over Mm. 1,200, that was when the media attention came. So transposing Mm -hmm. to now... I think the media attention will come once we get over 20K. Hmm. Yeah, I think in the minds of the average investor, uh, this is my last point. I think in the minds of the average investor, you know, we're still down, right? Because, oh, well, it's, it's lower than it was before, so it's you're still down. Um, when you start talking about like 2X, 3X over all-time high, then people's greed starts taking over that little part of their brain that says, hey, why, why didn't you buy some of this, you know, back when it was only 20000 right? Now you, you think of, and, and their brain starts thinking all the stuff they could have done with that money that they would have had if they'd been smart enough to buy it when it was cheap. Uh, and that's when the, the greed and FOMO really kicks in. Uh, exactly. So I would hazard a guess to say, again, I, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I would hazard a guess to say that that will come over the next year or two. Uh, and once that comes, that's when the next real FOMO will happen. Hmm. Oh, Stefan, I love this conversation, man. It was kind of uh, more all over the place than I expected, but that's fine because a lot of times when I talk, we talk about Bitcoin, it ends up that way. Um, <laughs> any, anything else you want to hit on before we get going? I, I'm gonna. I want to plug your show too, uh, guys. If you haven't listened to Stefan Lavera's show. Definitely go check that out. I'm going to post links for it down in the show notes. If you haven't listened, I'd be surprised. But if you haven't, I definitely encourage you to go check it out. Stefan has so many great episodes. Uh, and anything else you want to hit on, Stefan, before we go? The floor is yours. Um, nothing else to add. I would just say, yeah, check out my site. It's stefanlevera.com. You can find me on Twitter, at stefanlevera. And then, yeah, the podcast is available uh, on uh, all the standard podcast platforms if you search Stefan Levera Podcast. And, uh, yeah, look, thanks thanks very much for hosting me, Colin. Welcome back, guys. I hope you liked my chat with Stefan. Please go check out his podcast. I mean, if you're listening to this and you haven't heard of Stefan Levera, um, I suppose it's possible because I do draw my audience in from a lot of different places than just Bitcoin Twitter, but I highly encourage you guys to go check it out. I've got a link to his show down in the show notes. Go follow him on Twitter as well. He puts out lots of great content. I want to thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoy the show and you want to help me out just in whatever podcast app you're listening to the show in, go ahead and give me some stars or some thumbs up, uh, subscribe. All that goes a long way to help me out. 
It really does increase the notoriety of the show and help get the message about Bitcoin out to more people. If you guys want to find more of our episodes, you can go to BitcoinEchoChamber.com. I've got all the episodes listed there, as well as you can find us on pretty much any of your favorite podcasting services, Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, Overcast, Podbean, etc. And if you want to get in contact with me, if you've got questions about the show, if you have ideas for a potential topic or you want to be a potential guest or sponsorships or just comments or anything like that, you can send me an email at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com or you can reach out to me on Twitter at heavilyarmedc. That's the letter C. My DMs are always open and I look forward to hearing from you guys. I will see you next week.